Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, today we will discuss the most, discuss something that, in fact, this is interesting because I've been using, I've been teaching this course since 2000, sorry, 1998, um, and I've always used McKim's book because it's a great book. And up until about three, four years ago, it never had a, a section on inhalants. Um, it's come to the national attention in Canada. Uh, originally, I think, now I was living in Newfoundland then, so I may be biased, but originally I think that because of what was happening in, in places like Davis Inlet, Newfoundland, and Labrador, uh, and of course Bill McKim's at, at Munn, so maybe that's part of the reason. Um, but we've heard a lot more about this kind of thing uh, recently, so it's interesting that you know, there really wasn't a section on this just a few years ago. Um, and this is going to be very depressing. And that's not some play on words that it's a depressant. This is going to be depressing. This is going to make you sad. And if it doesn't make you sad, you're not a person. I question your humanity. You might be some sort of Cylon. Okay, so we're talking about solvents, paints, nail polish remover, gasoline, wet food. Okay. These kind of things. In the late 1950s, uh, there were people inhaling a glue, loosening. Right? And if you ever made a model when you were uh, a kid, make like model planes or cars, things like that, um, <clears throat> on the side of the tube of the glue, and you've got to use the, the stuff that's toxic. The, the non-toxic model glue just doesn't work properly. Like most things like this, the non-toxic one just doesn't work well. On the side of it, it actually says to use it in a well-ventilated room and to use it under parental supervision because it'll make you loopy pretty quickly. I remember uh, putting, strapping down on the floor with my father and we were using contact cement and the two of us, because it wasn't very well ventilated because we were finishing a basement, I was about 12, and I swear we were just in a stu- well, we weren't quite in a stupor, but we were getting kind of loopy really quick because it was just like, we were busy and of course we were using power tools. And you know, I'm blind already, my kid's autistic. I didn't have a kid then, but you know, we'll just throw that in there. Um, so there were people sniffing glue, right? As is not uncommon among media types, uh, this was picked up, and a story was ran, I believe, in Life magazine about people that sniff glue. Um, and it was a very small number of people, and it seems that then suddenly more people started sniffing glue. I'm rarely a media blamer. I usually blame the media blamers. But... Uh, it sort of came to attention to people. So, oh, really? You can sniff glue and get high? <laughs> so it seemed to have increased it. Um, and then in the 1970s, uh, the same sort of thing happened with people sniffing uh, aerosols, uh, things like uh, spray paint, uh, PAM, you know, this cooking spray, because of the, the uh, propellant. Now, paint, of course, just has uh, a lot of these kind of chemicals in them. A lot of times it's just the propellant, so things like the, the propellant that's in hair, well, is in hairspray. The propellant that was in PAM, the spray-on cooking spray. That stuff uh, can make you loopy. So again, it was a small number of people doing this. And then, and I forget what magazine picked this up in the 70s. Uh, I think it was Time this time. This is Time Life is a real problem for spreading these kind of things. Um, and again, it became, had a, there was a small little bump in popularity of people doing this. 
as far as the general public goes. It's something that people had always done ever since this stuff's been around, but it tended to be really marginalized parts of society. Okay, so these inner city people typically in the States uh, and isolated people in Canada, typically isolated native communities. And now we hear about gasoline. Uh, the difference here is that I don't think there's much of an epidemic uh, among the general population of people smoking gasoline. <coughs> That's a child. That kid's about five. He looks like. He's a DNA person from Deb Davis and Mike. And he's got a garbage bag full of uh, gasoline. And he's huffing gasoline. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. This kid isn't uh, huffing, uh, isn't sniffing. Uh, sniffing is, you know, really, you know what sniffing is. What he's doing is huffing. So what you do is you, uh, so just if you want to do this, <laughs> I've got to break it with some comedy, it's very depressing. Um, <laughs> like that. So you breathe it in, in short bursts. Okay, that's what huffing is. You can swallow it, now you don't do that on purpose, typically. But often, this is one of the reasons that a, a bag is used as this big, great big garbage bag. And remember, this garbage bag is as tall as this, maybe a little, little shorter than this kid. And he's got some gasoline in the bottom. Because if you don't do it that way, you're going to end up swallowing some. Right? But people do end up swallowing little bits. Now, one of the things that is often done, and this kid doesn't seem to be doing it, is you put a cloth, like a wet face cloth, uh, as a, basically a filter. So you don't get so much, you do get some fresh air that way. You can also take a cloth and soak whatever you're huffing in the cloth and just breathe through the cloth. That's not really good. The bag, of course, concentrates the, in this case, gasoline. Um, and you would typically be using gasoline here. Uh, if you did this with something uh, that, like contact cement, it would actually just dissolve the bag, right? Because contact cement dissolves plastics. So the bag concentrates the amount. You, you wouldn't want to just have a, it's like, you know, you know you're at the gas station, right? And you can smell the gasoline in the air. That's not going to make you loopy because there's not enough concentration in the air for anything bad to happen to you. But if you put it in a bag and, and huff it, you're much more likely, uh, what happens is, well, I'll talk about it in a sec, but basically this works through diffusion. It's really quite simple. So the, the, the concentrations, you know, like this, they just sort of try to get to be the same in two different places. Uh, you can do this from an aerosol can as well. <clears throat> Typically you would spray it into the bag. Um, something like a uh, Ziploc bag, something like that, or even a, uh, like a plastic uh, shopping bag kind of thing, and you just spray the contents, uh, and very often what you'll do is you'll turn it upside down because you don't want to actually be huffing PAM, you want to be huffing the, in the propellant. And again, a lot of the, those propellants aren't like this anymore, but there are, you know, if you if spray paint, uh, lacquer especially, it'll have... Uh, there's a, there's a chemical in lacquer, and I'll talk about it in a second, that is psychoactive. So you just spray it into the bag, and then you can huff from the bag. 
Uh, you, again, you wouldn't want to do that too long with lacquer because it'll eat away at the plastic. It's absorbed, as you would imagine, into the lungs, and it's quickly passed to the brain. Things that are absorbed into the lungs tend to be quickly passed to the brain. Um, the, the concentration in the blood approaches the concentration in the air. So this is just what you would expect when you have low concentration in one place, high concentration somewhere else, is it evens out. It's just diffusion. Uh, fatty tissue, you get the most due to the fact this stuff's highly lipid-soluble. Um, those are places like the brain and the liver of a brand. So it goes right to your brain and likes it there. Okay. Questions so far? It's pretty straightforward. Though, uh, you'll see in a second, we don't really, there's not a whole lot of research being done on this. It's kind of hard to do. Okay. The concentrations also drop very quickly, as you would expect, because once you take the bag away and you're exhaling, right, the concentrations are going to go back towards what it is in the, in, just in the air. Okay? Goes in through the lungs. Um, the more blood flow there is, the faster the reduction is going to be in the amount of whatever you're inhaling. Which makes just complete sense, sort of follows. Uh, toluene, which is the <clears throat> toluene, rather. This is, you know this smell, this is the smell of magic markers. This is the smell of contact cement. This is the smell in model glue. Right? So we all think know this smell. It's kind of a, it's actually, it's one of these things where it, it, it's, for no apparent reason, it's pleasant to smell. <clears throat> right? You don't want to sit there huffing it all day, but it's actually, you open a can of contact cement if you're working on something, it's like, oh, that smells kind of good. Metabolized in the liver, um, and most of it's not exhaled. The liver itself, and toluene is, is one of the ones we'll talk mostly about because it's, it's in fact the most common, uh, commonly, uh, well, let's put it this way. It's the most understood one about how it works. The liver then breaks it down and creates metabolites whose cells are toxic. So we go from benzyl so we go from toluene to benzyl alcohol to benzyl dehyde to benzoic acid. <coughs> and then it ends up as what's it called? Hippuric acid, I think. Uh, and then just you pee that in. Uh, this would actually look somewhat familiar. You know, acetaldehyde from alcohol. Uh, in fact, there is a benzyl coenzyme, coenzyme A that's taking this and breaking this down to that. Whenever we get an alcohol, of course, it's going to be, uh, it has effects on its own. So it's, it's going to be uh, psychoactive. So we don't, um, that one we kind of know. And in fact, the test that's done to see if people are uh, intoxicated on, on, on toluene is, uh, it's a urine test. And they're looking for hippuric acid. Excuse me. 
which does occur naturally, but not nearly in the quantities you get if you're uh, sniffing blue. How long do those like how long are those tests good for? Like if you were to sniff this and get caught driving like three hours later? That I don't know. Uh, I think it's pretty quick though. Um, you would still see an elevated bit of concentration, I would think, after three hours. There is some question about the validity of those tests. Because this stuff actually occurs naturally in urine, um, it especially occurs in horse urine. Uh, if you know a little Latin, you see, oh, hyperic acid, I said. So it's been said that people that are, that are sniffing glue have a distinctive, that, that their, their urine distinctively smells like horse piss, actually. Um, but there is some in all mammal urine, right? Um, so there has been some question about the accuracy of, of these tests, but frankly, if it's done pretty quickly, I think it should be pretty close because it's direct metabolites. So. But I'm no, I'm no expert in it. I don't know that anyone is, frankly. Um, how do they work? Um, not the word seem. The effects seem to be like alcohol or tranquilizer. They probably enhance gap. They, they, that seems pretty clear, which makes some sense. And glycine. Glycine is also an inhibitory neurotransmitter. They attenuate, in other words, they turn down the volume of NMDA receptors for glutamate. Now, NMDA is a neuromodulator. NMDA increases firing. Glutamate is excitatory, also the most common neurotransmitter in your brain. So it makes this work a little less bad, less well, making glutamate, so indirectly making glutamate not work so well. Uh, it does seem to affect dopamine in the mesolimbic dopamine system, the, the reward system, but we really don't know how. Um, questions about that? Yeah, please go ahead. Is that just for toluene? Or is that for octane itself? Like the, uh, it's gasoline, so it's going. Yeah, gasoline probably does that and that. I don't know about these two. So it does and it's GABA. It seems to. It's just pure octane? Yeah. Okay. And it, pro and it certainly affects the people who take it if it didn't do something here. So the impurities account for some of the other. Yeah, there's all, well, there's all, of course, there's all kinds well, of other crap yeah, in there, right? I'm wondering if, I don't know, is there a preference amongst people that... That I don't know. I think it's whatever's available. Though people don't huff diesel fuel. Okay. From what I understand. From what I understand. See, part of the problem here is looking at this kind of stuff being, doing research on gasoline huffing is very difficult. And we'll talk about that shortly. But it's done in isolated communities by an ethnic group that is certainly within their rights not to trust white people in general. So it's kind of hard to convince people to let a researcher come in and study. I mean, it's totally, I mean, you should be able to understand that. Behavioral effects, it looks like alcohol. It looks like alcohol, uh, you know, uh, intoxication. Uh, people hallucinate. Uh, they get seizures very quickly. 
they have a stupor, you know, you've heard the expression drunken stupor where you can't walk straight. Well, people get it an inhaled stupor. Uh, you can die. And think about it. If it works simply through diffusion and the concentration in the, the bag you're hopping from is basically getting to be the same concentration in your body, if you don't take a breath, you can kill yourself. Right? So it probably impairs driving. I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic there. Yeah, it seems pretty clear. Ironic, it's the thing that makes car go. So it seems pretty clear that we do that. More effects. Um, there's probably tolerance. There's probably withdrawal. Um, again, we don't really know uh, because a systematic study of people that you would get for every other drug, which can be done in treatment centers, things like this, this isn't done. And it's not done because no one wants to do it. It's done because it is very hard to do, both practically and uh, let's go with the word socially. It's practically difficult because you have to find a place where they're doing this. They tend to be isolated communities. So that's practically difficult. It's also sort of socially difficult because these tend to be isolated native communities. And if this is happening, and most of the researchers aren't native people. I don't want to go into why that's the case. You want to have an argument about that, you go do that somewhere else. But most people that have PhDs in, or, or, or like PhD and be like medical researchers or, or PhDs in pharmacology or, or psychology, whatever, they tend to be white people. Right? And those folks have a lot of reasons not to like and trust, let's say trust, white people. Kind of been screwed around for a while. And then you look at the states, right? Where this happens in the states, but it happens in inner cities which is sort of socially isolated, hard place to go to, and let's see, a group of people, typically, that have every reason not to trust white people. This isn't me going, oh, it's so hard being white because it's easy. As Louis C.K. says, the comedian says, it's awesome, you know, it's really easy being white. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I understand it makes sense to me that people wouldn't trust the group I belong to. And look at me, I'm the king of that group. I'm the whitest guy you've ever seen. And a lot of these studies would probably be governmentally sponsored too. Which, again, well, they almost would have to be because that's who funds things. And again, you got people in both those situations that aren't going to trust governments. Even if you say, no, no, it's funded by the Canadian Institute of Health Research. Is that a government agency? Yes? Oh, great. No, you, you, can, you can leave. Yeah. So again, that makes that's a good point. And the same thing in the inner cities in the States, right? You've got people that, they get screwed by the government all the time. And they have been for a very long time. So we, it's hard, unlike, let's say, you might say, well, it's supposed to be hard to study heroin. Yeah, it is, but we can go down to the methadone clinic and I bet we could find people that would sign up for a study. Right? That'd be easy. 
I, I don't want to do it. I think it would depress me. But I, one could. Right? Um, it seems to lead to psychotic-like behavior, which goes away after you've taken, after you've perhaps gone through withdrawal. Uh, long-term exposure, there are anecdotal uh, reports, though, that long-term exposure can just lead to generally psychotic-like behavior. So always being hallucinating, um, not reality testing, those kind of things. Uh, it probably leads to liver cancer. It probably leads to kidney disease. It probably leads to pancreatic cancer. I mentioned, okay, kidney disease damage, so kidney disease. Cysts, things like this, and just general, perhaps shutting them down. Is there something called fetal solvent syndrome? Probably. So this is when the mother has been huffing gasoline or contact cement or something like that. This can lead to this, something that's very similar to fetal alcohol syndrome. There's a question mark there because it's hard to parse apart the use of inhalants and the drinking, which often go together with it. Right? Again, if you're going to parse those apart, you have to actually talk to people and get them to honestly tell you <coughs> excuse me, how much they've been drinking when they're pregnant compared to how much they've been huffing gasoline. And again, we just outline, just outline why this is very difficult to do. They're not going to want to admit to it, first of all. But secondly, even if you did go, they're not going to want to talk to you anyway. Right? So it's hard to admit to something that you know would damage your kid. Right? And I think something we have to understand about this kind of behavior is that it's not that these people are stupid and don't know any better. It, they, they know this is bad for them. It's just like a heroin, somebody who takes has a heroin problem, they know heroin isn't good for them. It's not like they're reading some fringe press that says, really, it's okay. Right? Some guy's blog. People know these things are bad for them. They do them anyway. You can overdose. I mentioned death. So. Y'all depressed yet? <laughs> Okay. This is where it actually gets really depressing. Um, what's been tried to, to prevent this? Well, nasty additives, people putting nasty additives into uh, things like gasoline, things like uh, industrial solvents, to make them exceedingly unpalatable. So things like capsaicin, the, that's what it's called, the, the stuff that makes peppers hot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you put a whole lot in there and it burns your nose a little bit. It's like, well, that wasn't really very much worth it. Or rotten egg smell, right? Uh, sulfur dioxide, yes? Um, you know, these are, yeah, does it work? Sure. But you know what? These are actually things that are useful. Gasoline and the vast majority of humans aren't huffing gasoline. The vast majority of humans aren't huffing contact cement. So if we make it disgusting to use, 
or even more dangerous, all we're doing is slowing everything else in the world down. So while this can, this has been tried and it's had some success, uh, the question then becomes, how do you do it? And the other question is, let's say, okay, fine. Then all the gasoline that goes to some of these isolated communities, we'll put the nasty additives in. Not everyone there's doing this, and it's not fair to them. And they need gasoline for, and especially in an isolated uh, northern community, you need vehicles to get around. Right? You need gasoline. Um, education. This is this is this is the idea then that native people are stupid, so they have to be told this isn't good for them. They know that they're not idiots. Everybody knows that huffing gasoline is bad for you, right? This really pisses me off. Yes, kids have to be told it's bad for them. Even the five-year-old kid huffing gasoline knows it's not very good for him. He's not stupid. This tends to tends to uh, take over communities when this happens. They see what happens. They're not idiots. So yeah, let's have a little workshop. Did you know this isn't good for you? Okay, little Indians? No. 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 Of course it doesn't work. They already know it's bad for them. They're stupid. There's no way to that. I mean, it's the best. If intentions, but if people would think for maybe 45 seconds, they'd realize that it's a little paternalistic. I almost sound like I'm in the sociology department. <laughs> one, one day a year. <laughs> one day a year. Yeah, please. I think if someone was proposing that that would be a solution to that problem, yeah. they'd be looking at it as if the cause was because they thought that it, or they didn't realize that it was bad. Yeah. You know, and it's like... And that's, that's, that's a put-down. <laughs> it's like, of course they know what's bad for them. It's stupid. Well, it's the same with smoking. Yeah. All the ads that tell you how bad it is mm-hmm. where you're supposed to make you quit, they don't. Yes. Well, the, the, thing, the difference there is that with smoking, we also have warning labels on things, all that good stuff. Um, and for a while, people did have to be told this. Yeah, but for a while, they probably had to be told that about gas huffing and stuff like that before they realized the effects. Yeah, perhaps. I mean... The, but the, it's kind of a moot point now. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it may have been the case 30 years ago, but I, I still don't think anybody thought it was good for them. No. You know? Or, or neutral. Right? People knew cigarettes were bad for them in the 1930s. That was one of these things where eventually the science caught up with it, and eventually the, the reason, yeah, it's bad for them. But we've got something here where, like I said, it, it seems to me that it's just a little realistic. Yeah, again. Like when alcohol was brought here, yeah, um, we knew it was bad right away. But yeah. like, there's different causes, like reasons why they want to get all fucked up or whatever. You know, like, yep. So, well, I mean, alcohol is a great example, a different kind of example though. Alcohol, well, it's not, it's not a safe drug. You can ingest alcohol safely, reasonably, right? One can. You can have a couple of drinks. It's possible. And it could be a fun social situation. Or whatever. Not this. You have to say, well, I just want a little bit of, hop a bit of gas before dinner. You know, it's not like you're having a cocktail. Uh, it's a bit of a, and I, I understand your point, I point taken about alcohol. Um, but 
And I, I think it's pretty clear, looking historically, that sometimes alcohol, well, alcohol was, was traded with, with Native people for no, well, because they would trade for it, but no one cared about their health. And again, I don't know that anyone really realized, well, they knew, yeah, they knew those bad health effects of alcohol. Hey, Dave, something else yeah. to bring into perspective that maybe people don't always realize yeah. uh, is that a lot of those communities where that kind of abuse happens, uh, there is an alcohol abuse. They're dry communities. Yes. And so that's right. One of the reasons I think that solvent abuse is more common is because there's nothing else. People won't be arrested for importing Pam into the communities, like shipments of Pam will get seized on Yes. Whereas people try to delay and whatever else. Yes. A lot of the communities are dry, and again, because there's, there's oftentimes a real alcohol problem in these places. Um, so they basically say no more alcohol. And I'm not saying it should be alcohol, or shouldn't be, that's people's decision, um, whatever. But if there's nothing else that you end up with, it's the, and you can't not have gasoline in a place where you have to get around on a snow machine for eight months a year, or six months a year. You just can't not have gasoline. Right. It just won't work. Please. Yeah, I think that's interesting what she said because, um, like, for instance, during the alcohol prohibition, yep. it, like, alcoholism got much worse. Oh, yeah. It just it yeah. made people go to different avenues to get. Oh yeah, people will always be drinking. I mean, one of the things about prohibition of drugs in general is that it doesn't work. It just generally doesn't work. I mean, sixty-five percent of Canadians over the age of eighteen have smoked marijuana in the last year. Like that, that, that's a startling statistic, right? And it's illegal. And no one, it's, people still do it. Um, legal drug, alcohol, 85%. Man, probably more, man, that's American data. Probably 90% of Canadians have drank alcohol. It's legal. I mean, the difference is pretty, pretty small there. So yeah, t- typically prohibition doesn't work. Typically it doesn't work. I mean, I guess you could do the education thing in a way... You could probably talk to little kids about it. That's about it. About side effects. Yeah, the side effects, the effects. I think anything beyond little kids, they know better. I think you, the, I, I still think five-year-olds know it's bad because they see it around. Yeah, please. Um, I've heard of, like, uh, say those suicide prevention trainings that they go around to schools and do. Yep. That when they do that, suicide rates actually go up there because they're, like, introducing them to these foreign So ideas. you're saying I could kill myself, are you? Um, yeah, I mean, this and is same one of the, like the MAD programs where they go around and yeah. they say, like, don't do this, and then the kids start... One of, one of the problems with things that are done without a research base behind them is that they can lead to this kind of thing. In fact, uh, whenever, in fact, there are plane crashes on television, uh, on the news, uh, suicide rates jump the next week all over the world. It's modeling behavior. So it is a concern. It is, you have to be very careful about doing this kind of thing. I just kind of get the yeah, please go ahead. This about the suicide prevention. I used to do suicide uh, prevention work in small, remote, Arctic communities. Um, and that's really very much a stigma that when you go into schools, because that's what I would do is I would go into schools and do workshops with kids. Um, that's all stigma. Generally, when people go into communities, it's because there's been a rash of suicides and the communities don't know how to address it. Since they bring in uh, sort of liaisons to work in the community with different members. Yeah. Um, to raise it because often the kids don't know who to talk about, but there's no uh, like evidence that talking about it increases the likelihood. Mm. Um, but that is a big, that's a common myth. Like, I went to a Catholic high school and there was a lot of suicides in that high school when I was there, and uh, we would always have memorials and the word suicide would never be brought up. 
Well, I don't know. Yeah. Had to do with the fact that he was Catholic, but I think also to do with the fact that they didn't want to uh, perpetuate that stigma. I don't think that they they would only do suicide prevention training where there's been a lot of suicide. So like, I get what you're saying, like that they would do that where there's been a lot of suicides, but I don't think that they just only do suicide prevention training there. And I, I'd actually be interested in talking to you about that data that I've looked at where it says like in areas where there wasn't high levels of suicide, they come in and do this training and then the rate goes up. Yeah, but see, that's not what Julie's talking about. She's talking about going in when there's been a rash of suicides. So it's a... You could actually both be right, conceivably. Because you're talking about something where you're going in and it's, we've already got a really big problem clearly there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So you may, you may in fact both be right in a way. Oh, yeah. Different situations. Um, treatment in general is going to be really hard. Um, these folks, no matter where they are, and we can concentrate on a Canadian example if you wish, which makes sense of it. There's a lot of other problems going on too. There can be alcohol problems. Um, which almost, even if it's a dry community, that's all problems. Um, there are problems, economic problems, right? Uh, unemployment, things like that. So the other problems are there. And let's think about this reinforcement-based model of drug-taking behavior. Because you might all be thinking to yourself, why the hell would anyone do this? For a while, it makes them it's the problems. only thing that makes you feel good, and it's the only thing that can make you feel good. Right? So, if that's the case, we have to make people. What do we do typically with treatments? We tell people to take joy in other things in their lives. When your whole town is doing this, that is very difficult. Right? Things have been tried. Uh, the kids, this was in the, in the late 90s, the kids from Davis Inlet were taken out of Davis Inlet. Which, I mean, frankly, their parents weren't looking after them. Because their parents were also having gasoline. It was a really horrible situation. So it was like, what we've got to do is we've got to get these kids clean and sober. <coughs> and then we'll get them into a, a situation that isn't like this. And then we'll bring them back. Like, you know, they're not taking them forever. So the kids are taken to a very small place in Labrador. And I'm taking to St. John's. St. John's to, actually to many of you because you're from Sault Ste. Marie, would seem like a big city. Because there's, ooh, 250,000 people. I, I caught it in Cornwall, but there were 18,000 people and there were people saying, oh, Jesus, it's a big town. It's like, no, but oh yeah, you come from a place with 38 people there. <laughs> so, and the same kind of thing. So, Think of the culture shock. So kids get off an airplane. I remember the, the, the cameras were there to meet them because the, the, the province and, and, the, and the national government, they, were, they, were, they didn't know what to do. So this was suggested. Let's, go, let's help the kids. And that, you know, help the children. Makes sense. They take the kids. They take them to St. John's. They get them on a bus. They take them to a, a plane. They fly them to St. John's. And they're going to stay with families. They're going to stay with, that you know, have been pre-selected that are all sympathetic and really want to help. And this is all done with the best possible ideas. So, and I remember a little kid who was about five or six getting off, the, and this was covered live on TV because it was huge news in the film. And a kid gets off the bus, and he looks at the cameraman, and the kid's six. He goes, hey, buddy, you got to fucking smoke? <laughs> and that's a six-year-old kid. And when you're dealing with a kid that is that hard already, as we say in Newfoundland, not much of a hard case, 
Um, I think just taking it away for a couple of months and getting it, that's, you got to do more than that. And of course, then the kids go away, they get culture shock like crazy, because they're from a town where everybody, it was a Dene, everyone's just like them, to a town where nobody is. Yeah, wouldn't it have made a lot more sense to take them to a, like a, maybe a larger reservation? Which also probably had a lot of the same problems. The things in Newfoundland were really in bad shape. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, like Sheshashi was just, it wasn't gas hopping as much as it was just drinking. So, I mean, all these places where it was a bad scene. So the kids actually get on fine after a couple, kids are great. After a few weeks, they're, they're, they're going to school and everything, and they're integrating, and the kids are accepting them and all this stuff, except they're a little tougher than the other kids. They're looking for smokes, I guess, and stuff. But then they go back home. You know, the kids are all cleaned up, right? Yeah, but nothing's been cleaned nothing's up. Nothing's been cleaned up at home. And then they try to do things like, oh, we'll build them a community center. Yeah, that'll do. Let's bake people in arena, because you know it solves everything, hockey. So, I don't know what to do. This not, does not just involve drug treatment. This involves, I don't know what the hell it involves. Um, no matter what it is, it's going to be expensive as hell, because you're going to be treating a society. Right? You're not, you're, you're not treating single individuals. You are treating a whole town and you have to make it so people have things they can enjoy. They can take joy in. But if they've got nothing around them, what are you going to do? I, I, I don't know. A lot of things have been tried. I don't know what the answer is. <coughs> I really don't. And I don't think anybody does. Please. I think the hard answer is that it probably has to do with you need a change in the entire system itself. Uh, yes, yeah, and that's, that's, that's sort of what I'm getting at. Yeah. And how are you going to do that? Exactly. <laughs> you know? How do you appease the and, and, and the people whose place it is where they live, it's their land. It's their, it's, they have a say because it's theirs. And are they going to want that? I think a lot of people do. Well, if you look at the roots of inequality and you want to try to change that and make you yeah. know, justice for all and everything that they're, we idealize. Yeah, and of course, you know, in places, social engineering rarely works very well. You know, the idea of, well, we'll just change this whole place. Uh, it doesn't, you know, I mean, going back to another Newfoundland example in the 1950s when Newfoundland became a province in 49, they were shutting down all the outports and forcing people to move. There's forced migration from these little outports, and people literally dragged their houses. There's these amazing pictures of people. And people are still angry about that. And justifiably so. Maybe it was better for them to move somewhere else. But that was their home, and their family lived there forever, and that was their land. And then we got a case like this where you got whole communities. It's their, it's, this is their place. What are you going to do? They did try in Newfoundland with one place literally moving the whole reserve. Um, more than anything, they got a fresh start. It's like, we're just going to leave this place where the bad stuff happened and we're going to move it somewhere. It didn't help a lot. It cost about $35 million and it didn't help a lot. That's, that's a thought, right? Like I said, social engineering hardly ever works. Just one of these things. It's just now I don't sound like a member of the sociology department. Suddenly, um, little, little sociology joke there. So we got all kinds of other societal problems in these places. So we got to treat society. But <coughs> how do you do that? This is going to. This is understatement of the lecture. This may take many attempts. <laughs> it might be hard. And every time I've taught about this stuff, and I have had students over the years, um, of course, both native and non-native students, 
and none of us can ever come up with a solution. And this tends to be, you know, your university students, they tend to be smart people. Please, you got a solution? We'll sell it. Well, I think money is probably one of the biggest problems is they created like a dependency in the native communities on that government funding. And it also bred corruption within the community. There's, like, there is that. They have this electoral system, which yep. they never had before. Yep. And it's like, it's saying Garden River here, where this, all of where the Sioux is, like, I mean, mm -hmm. when you look at it, the re reservations that we were, quote, given or whatever, the deals we made, yep. it's nothing, like... Especially up in like the Northwest Territories in like British Columbia where the Dene people are, that Rupert's House land claim. The problem is is that like they can't it's hard for them to live in a traditional way, which is the the only way that they will ever be healthy, because like <laughs> it seems pretty clear to even like white people or black people or whatever, this whole system that's been built yep. up, it's not there's nothing about equality, it's gonna collapse and it's like That's probably true. Now, so to me, you, we, need, to, you yeah. need to take them off that money, give them their our land back, and yeah. keep those treaty rights alive. Yeah. Whereas what they're doing is these chiefs who are they're trying to represent all these other native people. They're saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll make a deal like they did in Garden River, where they took their fishing rights away. Like to me, that's so insane because those people on those reserve right there, it's like. That's their livelihood, you yeah. know, and it's like they take that raid away and it's few people gain from yeah. that because they're mimicking the same system that is in Western culture. And I think, which I mean, and there's an argument can be made there, but I mean, the, the thing is that I don't, I don't know about putting genies back in bottles either. Right? So saying, and I think what you're saying is, is this something hear a lot talking about living traditional lifestyle, all those things, which are great. If that's what you want to do, cool. And you want no internet then? You know, uh, like I'm saying, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic or flippant. I really am not. But I'm not putting a genie back in a bottle is not an easy thing to do. And that's not what I'm suggesting. Like, yeah. I know it would have to be a mix of the modern with the yes, old. Of course. But like the, it's like the, yeah. the structures uh, that are in power, like how yeah. that... Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and the thing is, I think a lot of times people blame the fact, people say, oh, look at these native people, they can't do it. Small town politics, which is typically what these things are, um, I've lived in a small town. Small town politics everywhere is pretty corrupt. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, green, purple. Uh, so you got that going. And you've got all this, as you said, money flowing in. Then again, we can't not put the money in. That's... You can't. Do, I don't know what they're what they're not doing. They should be giving all that money to the individuals because it's that's it's a possibility. Ours. Not giving however many million dollars to my band and then you know the, band the, the nepotism yeah. in the yeah. band and they all. It's like I said, small town politics or small town politics. Ashley. Another issue too that a lot of First Nation reserves face is the fact that they aren't trained to deal with prevention. They're yeah. trained to deal with the crisis after the fact. Yes which is a severe issue that really yep. needs to be addressed. And I think this is, this is an interesting point, because if we are going to send, we being society, both Native and non-Native, just can Canadian society, if we're going to feel responsibility for people that are not doing so well, which we all should, we live in, that's one of those things. I think we should anyway. Um, if we're going to send then people in to go help, and preventative stuff, and also uh, reaction if we're going to do that, it strikes me that we need people that are that understand the culture, right? They, they, they get it. 
So we need people, probably native people. Have to be, but probably. Probably from the same part of the world. If that's the case, we have to be training people. Um, which is, I think, why people should be encouraged uh, to go in and do these kind of things, to, 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 to get the training. And these can, it can be a mix of, of sort of traditional stuff and sort of evidence-based medicine kind of approaches. I got no issue with that, with, with mixing the traditional. But that kind of thing, saying we're going to set up a scholarship fund, we're going to pay for people that are Native people to go off to graduate school to get uh, PhDs in, in clinical and counseling and community psychology. That'd be great, except that's going to take another 15 years before we have a cohort of people, right? Or 10 years of cohort of people that we can have coming back and helping. And you know, I wouldn't blame anybody when they get their PhD to say, you know, I think I'll set up shop in downtown Toronto because I can make $250 an hour. <laughs> so yeah, I don't even know. Because I mean, that's anybody that's small town, they go, oh, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of this place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, so, man, it's a puzzler. And I, 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 all these things that we're saying all kind of make sense. The problem is implementing them. Yeah, I don't even know, how, I don't even know what, what they even are. And it's not just a prohibitive cost, because I think tomorrow if you told, if you said to people in Canada, we need, everybody puts an extra 10 bucks on their taxes, right? So we'd get an extra, that's a quarter, a third of a billion dollars. And we could fix this thing. People go, okay. That'd be cool. I don't think people have a real problem with that. Well, some idiots would. Well, the people might have a problem with trusting the government to take that 10 bucks and actually put it towards that. Well, that's, yeah, part of it, yeah. But if you could have, like, if there was a fund set up by, by the research councils doing this kind of thing, whatever. Yeah. But, that, I don't know. Yeah, please. I just, the whole concept of a welfare state, like I was saying about breeding the dependents, mm-hmm. we need to, like, the Indian people especially, they need to be independent and not taught to be worried about getting this billion or that billion from like, like, cause the, the thing about this land is, is that it's the most productive area in the whole world. And a lot of people don't know that on the animals that live here. We don't like that, the diversity, especially right in this area, all the way to Thunder Bay, like it could <laughs> sustain so much. And it's like, but again, there you're talking kind of about genies going back in bonds and, cha- and changing in Canada, we have this centralized government that's essentially communist socialist, and it's... Stephen Harper is a communist <laughs> socialist? He's the idealism of capitalism, the market yeah. economy. We have a free market. We, we have a free market. We, we have no freedom to buy milk, so we it's have a free market. Properly. We have no freedom to pick a doctor because it's a completely monopolized system. How is that the epitome of capitalism when there's no free... Capitalism is about having interlocking monopolies, which industrialists own, and, and they shut down free markets. It's the opposite of what Okay, this is becoming an episode of the Glenn Beck Show, so we're going <laughs> to leave the... Anyway, you need local government. Small yeah, I think you, yeah, exactly. I think we don't have government. that. So, I mean, if you have a yeah. centralized government, that is Karl Marx. So, I don't... You can call... Car- okay, you, your political theories are very interesting, but we're going to move on. Uh, no, we're going to move on now, okay? You're done. Uh, about the politics stuff that's way too far afield from that. Um, any other points or questions? Because this stuff, I think, is, like I said, it's, it's a tough call. What, what is the situation in Davidson? Um, well, Davidson, uh, that place was moved. Well, it's just moved. Davidson, I think, is a little bit better than it was. <laughs> um, but when the kids got back, they got back to the desk. 
Uh, there you have a lot of corruption, apparently. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't actually know the answer. I Other questions or comments? We'll leave this one short because it's depressing enough and enough of a puzzle. If you do come up with a way to solve this, um, call the government. They probably want to know. Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.